1: Tuesday's primary races in states from Idaho to North Carolina were good news for the establishment of both political parties. Or bad news. It kind of depends on how you define the establishment. In North Carolina, for instance, Chuck Edwards, who had the backing of the state's junior senator, Tom Tillis, beat incumbent Representative Madison Cawthorn, who had the backing of former President Donald Trump. But in the GOP's Senate primary, Trump's guy, Representative Ted Budd, won the nomination Beating former Governor Pat McCrory and former Representative Mark Walker, once a member of House leadership. In Idaho, Representative Mike Simpson, a veteran Republican lawmaker, fended off a primary challenger who accused Simpson of being a rhino, a Republican in name only. And the state's Republican governor, Brad Little, held off a challenge from the Trump backed lieutenant governor, Janice McGeehan. But isn't Trump, as the former president, kind of the establishment? And then there's Pennsylvania where to start there. Joining us on this episode of Political Theater is Jacob Rabashkin of Inside Elections, and he will explain it all. Right, Jacob? Welcome back to Political oh, yeah. Theater. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, thank, thanks for having me. A lot to talk about. For sure. Why don't we start at Pennsylvania because it's the most unsettled and and probably won't be settled by the time this podcast gets out <laughs> uh, of of all the uncertainties that we have. There's an open seat in in Pennsylvania. Both parties are contesting it very heavily. Uh, this is key to control of the, of the chamber and an evenly divided Senate. Uh, in, in the Democratic field, uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman won it r- running away uh, from Connor Lamb. Uh, a a Democratic congressman from the Pittsburgh area, uh, you know that that there was no question <laughs> about that. Nobody in the D.C. leadership, you know, kind of realm, whether it was B- Joe Biden or or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, endorsed one way or the other, and they all seemed to be behind Fetterman. But there's a little bit of weirdness there because Fetterman is kind of an outsider, even as the lieutenant governor. And in the Republican primary, we've got this crazy uh, race that's still unsettled between Dr. Oz uh, who has Trump's backing and uh Dave McCormick who is uh, a little bit more of the kind of country club Republican he's married to Dina Powell who used to work in the Trump administration he's a hedge fund guy army veteran let's talk about the Republicans first because it it seems like we're we're going to be in for a little bit of a fight here for a, at least a little while until a recount
0: yeah well this this lived up to expectations as as a real barn burner in Pennsylvania, uh, for months now, we've known that it was going to be a real slugfest between uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, TV's Dr. Oz, and Dave McCormick, the the former hedge fund CEO. Uh, in in the last couple of weeks of the race, we had a little bit more excitement with a third candidate, Kathy Barnett, um, who uh, is, is a true conservative outsider, uh, not not just one in in name only. Uh, former conservative commentator had run for office once before uh, but never successfully uh, very little was known about her and so she kind of shook up the race in the closing weeks uh, ended up placing a third uh, not uh, as strongly as uh, some of the later polling suggested uh, and and yeah you know we're we are solidly in recount territory uh, between uh, Oz and McCormick uh, we're looking at Fewer uh, than 2,000 votes separating the two of them um, out of you know well over a million cast, um, and we we won't know for a while whether Trump's pick, Dr. Oz, uh, is going to be the nominee or whether it will be McCormick, um, who who takes on Fetterman in the fall.
1: Right, and and you know we should note too that Barnett is, is you know she was in in Washington for the January 6th protests. She was she had echoed a lot of the former president's uh you know claims of election fraud. Um I mean, she was, you know, really kind of a, a a darling, you know, if if you will, of like some of the more some of the more extreme right elements of the party. And even though she came in a a third, I mean, she'd probably end up with about 24, 25 percent of the vote. And with McCormick and Oz both at like around 31%, I mean, it's it shows like not, not just a you know, traditional Republican in in McCormick, insurgent Republican in Barnett, and then celebrity Republican <laughs> in Oz. Uh, you know, Oz in his in his speech on on the election night thanked Trump and Sean Hannity, uh, not not necessarily the people of Pennsylvania, <laughs> because he was lived in New Jersey up until a few months ago. Uh, but it it almost shows like where this strange sort of set where we're at, where it's hard to keep track of who is who's in power who's sort of in charge in the, in this sort of setting. Yeah,
0: I think that the important thing to remember is that even when we talk about someone like Dave McCormick being more of an establishment Republican, uh, that was not how he presented himself in the campaign. Uh, Dave McCormick ran as a Trump Republican. He Brought on, it almost became a recurring joke in political circles. The sheer number of Trump world people that he was bringing on to his campaign payroll, uh, in the hopes of securing that uh, coveted endorsement, he presented himself as a real MAGA warrior. He was not up on the debate stage saying, "Hey, you know, you guys know that I have a PhD in international relations from Princeton," uh, which he does, but you'll never hear him talk about that in a million years uh, because that's not where the Republican electorate is um and, and so yes even though uh, his resume uh if you were looking at it without watching his campaign you would think oh this is a guy who could have run for senate in the republican party anytime over the last 50 years uh, th- that's really not how he sold himself to voters um and so i i think the the story of this primary is that um all of the candidates were Trump candidates. Uh, Dr. Oz obviously was the Trump endorsed candidate, uh, but Kathy Barnett, I think Steve Bannon called her ultra MAGA. Um, you know, she she was uh, a real avatar of kind of the, the base level energy that propelled a lot of Trump's success in Pennsylvania over the last five years. Um, and then obviously McCormick trying very hard to adopt that mantle, move away from uh, his more establishment credentials uh, over the course of the campaign.
1: And on on the gubernatorial side, Doug Mastriano, uh, he won the primary for the Republican uh, nomination, and it, again is sort of more, you know, he, he had a little bit easier race. He didn't have, you know, as as much, you know, he, he won it outright. It was clear on election night. Uh, but he's another person who has sort of fallen in line, but seems to be a more true believer, if not, you know, just to you know, sort of echo what uh, you were saying about what, how Bannon described Barnett, he, he's probably along the lines of he's, if he's not ultra MAGA, he's ultra MAGA adjacent.
0: Yes, for sure. And, and, and again, uh, you know, the, the people who did well in that Republican primary, obviously Mastriano, but also Lou Barletta, uh, and, and Bill McSwain, former Congressman Lou Barletta, former U S attorney for the Eastern district of Pennsylvania, uh, Bill McSwain, all of them were running as, as Trump candidates. Um, uh, Mastriano is really all in on the big lie. He was also present uh, at uh, January sixth at the Capitol. He uh, has has been a pivotal figure in uh, this this movement to try and um, empower state legislatures to overturn the will of voters and assign electors uh, in the Electoral College to whomever uh, they feel really won the election. Um, he he has been at the forefront of of that movement and. Uh, that clearly struck a chord with the Republican electorate. Uh, he was the Trump endorsed candidate, but that endorsement came very late in the game and, and was more, uh, in my mind, at least that was more Trump hedging his bets when it looked like Dr. Oz might be, uh, on the outs, um, picking Mastriano was a pretty close thing, uh, close to a sure thing for Trump, uh, given just how well he was doing in the polling compared to the, the field of, of six or seven other candidates in the race.
1: And on the Democratic side, I mean, Fetterman just kind of ran away with the race, and unfortunately, you know, suffered a, a stroke uh, in the days right before uh, election night. He seems to be recovering fine. The the you know uh, he's in recovering in Lancaster, I believe, and you know they put a pacemaker in, so it seems like he'll be able to return to the to the trail, you know, at, at a certain point and, and run. Uh, especially he's got some time as Oz and <laughs> McCormick are fighting this out, uh, over the, over the recount, but regardless of whether it's Oz or Fed or, or McCormick, uh, there will be a real contrast if nothing else in style, uh, between Fetterman and, and Oz or McCormick to, for those of you who uh, are not familiar with John Fetterman, he, he does kind of look like a, a, a scary bouncer. Uh, I mean, he he's uh, six to eight, almost six nine, uh, bald, goatee, has tattoos. He has the zip code of Braddock, where he was the mayor, uh, tattooed in one forearm, and then the dates of gun violent deaths in uh, gun violence deaths in Braddock in, on his other arm. Uh, he wears shorts, gym shorts, and sneakers and hoodies. Uh, pretty much everywhere uh, he, he goes on the campaign trail. Uh, and, and he is pretty liberal. I mean, he's, he's no, uh, you know, kind of moderate. He doesn't portray himself as a moderate. He's very liberal, but he's also able to explain his viewpoints in ways and go, go places that a lot of Democrats can't seem to. It's, he's a kind of a fascinating character. John Fetterman is unto himself, uh, in, in the world of
0: politics. There's no one else, uh, quite like him. It is as if, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, instead of being a 70 something, a uh, guy from Vermont um, was a six nine uh, tatted up guy from Eastern uh, Western Pennsylvania. Um, he he absolutely steamrolled the opposition in this primary. I think by the end it was pretty clear that was how it was going to play out. In the beginning, I think uh, there there was a little bit more expectation that Connor Lamb, uh, the the congressman from Pittsburgh. Um, w- would put up a more stiff resistance. Uh, he eventually finished uh, well, well behind Fetterman, um, and, and I think that that's a testament to Fetterman's strengths as a candidate. Um, he has one of the best media machines of of any. Uh, politician in in the country, I would argue, certainly among the, the, the cadre of lieutenant governors. Uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find another lieutenant governor that has anywhere near the kind of uh, self-sustaining uh, media presence that he does. Um, and he has been able to go around the state and pick up votes everywhere, um, he, he did very well in Philadelphia. He did very well in Pittsburgh, but he also won every single other county um, in Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, I think that, that that's how we're going to see him run this race in the fall. I think his campaign is going to lean very heavily into his ability to go uh, to those places where Democrats have slipped in recent years and uh, turn out at least a little bit more vote Um, try and close the margins at least a little bit and give themselves a cushion in addition to, of course, uh, getting really great support out of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, which is integral to any Democrat who wants to win statewide.
1: And again, this is, you know, some people, you know, like would consider this maybe the real marquee, you know, matchup because, you know, with Pat Toomey retiring Republican, I mean, an open seat. I mean, Republicans have to hold all these pretty much, uh, and and flip, you know, it, it, they they can't afford a lot. There isn't a large margin of error. Uh, and if, certainly, if you know, if Federer is able to like pull this out, that gives the Democrats a cushion for some other candidates that might be a little wobbly uh, somewhere else. Um, so we could talk about Pennsylvania the whole time, but let's talk about North Carolina too, because again, just this message of you know, in, on one hand, the the sort of traditional establishment. Uh, people like Tom Tillis. He's also the um, you know the former House State House Speaker. I mean, he's he's a person who has his own constituency in North Carolina. He still knows you know the, the he's a big part of the political establishment, and he really made made sure that people knew that he was behind Chuck Edwards, uh, who was in, in a primary race against Madison Cawthorn. Cawthorn got Trump's backing. Cawthorn is again what you talk about Fetterman being a singular politician. <laughs> Cawthorn, not that many people have his sort of resume, uh, in terms of the kind of trouble he's been in with either speeding, taking guns to airports, getting photographed at Hitler's retreat in Germany. I mean, on and on. So again, like is the establishment Tom Tillis or is the establishment, uh, Donald Trump? (laughs) The answer has to be both. I think
0: the Cawthorn situation was really the rare moment where, um, his his controversies became uh, so omnipresent, um, and and they really cut through uh, the the news in a way that a lot of other kind of controversial Republican members of Congress don't. Uh, thinking about someone like a Lauren Boebert or a Jim Jordan or Marjorie Taylor Greene, who uh, are are bogeymen for for Democrats, but uh, not always kind of the A1 story of the day. And Cawthorn was, was uh, a a high profile embarrassment. Um, In addition to, you know, he called out his own conference um, for, you know, the, the cocaine and, and the orgies. Cocaine
1: fueled sex orgies. The cocaine fueled (laughs) sex orgies, which,
0: you know, I, I I think that, that uh, it didn't endear him to anyone. He did not try and make any friends In in Congress, and and when you're, you know, and and the one of the things that I think about uh, when it comes to Cawthorn that that you know is obviously ranks very low on the list of uh, things people think about about Madison Cawthorn. But uh, last year he got into a shouting match with David McKinley, the congressman from West Virginia, on the House floor. Um, And uh, obviously McKinley is also was defeated in his primary uh, and is not. you know, he wasn't House leadership or anything like that, but he was a more senior member. Uh, he was older. He had been, a, you know, and and here comes Cawthorn uh, getting mad at him uh, in, in a very public way. And I think that really is emblematic of, of how Cawthorn approached the role. And, and that didn't earn him any friends. And so when he became um, a net negative for the party as a whole, uh, there was really no reason for them to, to uh, want him around and plenty of reasons for them not to. Uh, so we saw a, a real effort to get him uh, out of office. I think in the Senate race, uh, Ted Budd is not objectionable to Republicans. Um, <laughs> I think that the Republicans. That's quite are a selling point. <laughs> <laughs> Repo- well, you know, in, in in some other Senate primaries around the country, uh, you, you can't always say that about the Republican uh, nominee. But but uh, Bud is, uh, th- th- they're fine with it. Th- they're all right with him. And so, um, th- there was no real urgency, uh, to try and defeat Ted Budd. I think on the flip side, McCrory, uh, perhaps once was the establishment, uh, obviously mayor of Charlotte for close to two decades, uh, was the Republican nominee for governor of North Carolina, three cycles in a row. Um, but uh was was by now a man without a political home. Um he won one county. Uh he won Mecklenburg County. Um, at least I think he, you know, what the last I checked the results, uh, he may have even lost no, he 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 won Mecklenburg County. That's the one county he won in the state. Um and otherwise, I, I think that he was trying to run for the nomination of a Republican Party that doesn't really
1: exist anymore. And, and again, th- in addition to representing the, the state's largest city, I mean, he was a governor. <laughs> like, I mean, he, he ho- held statewide office before, and it was just like, you know, it, it, voters were just like, nah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he, 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 in some ways,
0: he was yesterday's news. Um, He's obviously been out of office for six years. He lost, I think, if if he had won re-election in 2016 and, and was – a recently retired two-term governor. Um, this this would be perhaps a different story, but uh, he lost the state even as Richard Burr was winning the state, even as Donald Trump was winning the state against Hillary Clinton. Uh, he was the sole Republican um, at the top of the ticket to to lose his race, and and, and that clearly hurt him. Um, that was a selling point for the Bud folks uh, that. Um, Pat McCrory had, had already lost statewide in a good year. Uh, I, I do think though, however, there, there is an element of, uh, serendipity to the result in this race that, that shouldn't be overlooked, which is that this primary was originally scheduled to take place in the middle of March, um, in, in the second week of March and, uh, the litigation over North Carolina's congressional map, um, which was highly contentious, uh, progressed to the point where the the courts delayed the primary for two months uh, from March till May. And if you look at the polling numbers um, over the course of last year and in the first three months of the year, McCrory leads in every single survey taken of this race. Um, And about the second or third week of March, something flips and Bud takes the lead. He doesn't look back. He leads in every single poll from then on. So I think that there is a real possibility that had this race taken place when it was supposed to, uh, or originally scheduled to, at least, uh, in mid-March, McCrory could be the nominee. Uh, Certainly, I think he would have performed better than the pretty abysmal performance he turned in uh, on Tuesday. Uh, It it just happened to be that because of the the way redistricting worked, uh, Bud had that extra two months, the Club for Growth had that extra two months uh, to put him in a position to really dominate the field in a way that I found surprising, even though I, I thought he was going to win.
1: We could talk you know, a, a little bit also about some of the, I mean, you referred to redistricting uh, in, in North Carolina. It was a little unsettling. As you said, it moved the primary. It also scrambled where people were going to run. I mean, Cawthorn initially was going to run somewhere else, and then he jumped back into this district. But there were some there, there was a little bit of, of, of drama in the, uh, the seat that G.K. Butterfield is, uh, is vacating uh, among Democrats. I mean, this is one of those seats that the Republicans have their eyes on because Biden would have won it you know, in single digits, but Democrats are probably have a, a slight edge, maybe not this year. But, but there we had like disagreement again, one of these like who who is the establishment who isn't uh, in, in terms. Let's talk about that race.
0: This one was a fairly sleepy contest until about two weeks ago. Open seat uh, in the north, kind of northeast corner of the state, um, a marginally Democratic district. uh, And the Democratic primary was pretty straightforward. Uh, State Senator Don Davis. Um, had the support of G.K. Butterfield, had the support of most of the North Carolina Democratic establishment. Uh, Former State Senator Erica Smith was running as a more progressive candidate. Uh, She had already lost the 2020 Democratic Senate primary. Uh, She had dropped out of the 2022 Democratic Senate primary. And and so that outcome was never all that much in doubt. On the Republican side, you had a crowded field um, that really received a jolt when one of the candidates. Um, named Sandy Roberson released a massive file of opposition research targeting uh, his main opponent, uh, also named Sandy. Sandy Smith, um, alleging, uh, among other things, uh, some pretty serious uh, spousal abuse charges from uh, her first two husbands, um, in- including a-, a claim that she swung a frying pan at one of their heads. Um, uh, details about uh, bankruptcies. Uh, failure to pay taxes, running scams, uh, operating a, a sex shop at some at, at one point, um, just uh, reams and reams of of uh, damaging or embarrassing information um, that that he released shortly before the primary, and and then uh, the Congressional Leadership Fund, the the Super PAC very closely affiliated with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, came in in the final weeks of the race and uh, spent. Uh, a little over half a million dollars on ads attacking Sandy Smith over the contents of that opposition research file in an attempt to uh, stymie her momentum. Uh, It did not work. Uh, And and Smith won the primary. She avoided uh, being forced into a runoff with Roberson. um, And she'll be the nominee. She was also the nominee last cycle. She didn't win, obviously. and, And now there's all sorts of damaging information out there about her. Um, this is one that in, in the kind of national environment we're looking at should be competitive for Republicans, but given that they, uh, ended up with a fairly flawed nominee and Democrats ended up with a decently strong nominee, uh, th- this could be the rare race that, uh, even moves in Democrats favor, uh, over the course of the election,
1: uh, coming. Uh, are you saying candidates matter,
0: Jacob? <laughs> I am saying candidates matter. Um, at, at in some cases, uh, occasionally, uh, they do. And especially in a district where you need a bunch of things to go right. I think if Sandy Smith were the nominee in a situation, in a, in a constituency that, that Trump carried, um, by by certainly a sizable margin, but really any margin, it would be a very different story than a district that is already uh, at least slightly predisposed to vote for Democrats.
1: We've got a couple more races I want to touch on, and uh, Idaho I mentioned in the uh, intro. Uh, Mike Simpson, you know, has is, is been around for more than twenty years. I mean, he's when, when Republicans have controlled the House, he's usually one of those heavies that during a tough vote he gets the gavel. You know, I mean, he's. Respected across the aisle, uh, senior appropriator, uh, and you know he he was targeted, uh, you know, for for not being Republican enough. Uh, but he w- he was able to win, uh, and and then this gubernatorial race where <laughs> Brad Little, you know, again, th- th- this is Idaho, right? Th- this is not like anywhere near a blue place, except for maybe a couple of neighborhoods in Boise, you know, <laughs> or or Moscow, where the University of Idaho is. Uh, Don't forget Sun Valley. Oh, and yes, um, in Sun Valley, like where, where people have their, where people in California have their condos uh, for, so they can ski. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the Lieutenant Governor, uh, I mean, she, she really, you know, kind of picked up this sort of Trump mantle and Trump endorsed her and, and, you know, L- Little was able to pull this out. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it, again, it gets to this whole thing of like, what was Little's sin that got him on, on, on Trump's bad side in, in this case? That's an excellent question.
0: Uh, I'm sure Brad Little has asked himself that uh, many <laughs> times over the last couple months. Uh, you know, early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, Brad Little uh, was slightly more aggressive than your typical Republican governor in trying to contain the virus, and uh, that earned him the permanent enmity of uh, a lot of. Uh, Republicans in Idaho, including his own lieutenant governor, uh, which I should say they, they are elected on separate tickets. Um, they, they do not run together in either the primary or, uh, the general election in Idaho. Um, Janice McGeehan is, uh, well out of even the already conservative mainstream of the Republican Party these days. She has addressed a rally of the John Birch Society. She um, has attended rallies uh, where they uh, burned COVID masks um, in, in protest of mask mandates. When Brad Little would travel out of state and she would temporarily assume Uh, power as acting governor on several occasions, she would issue her own proclamations undoing things that uh, Brad Little had done uh, in in, in the course of his duties as governor, which he would then return back from, you know, whatever trip to Texas or to the East Coast and have to undo them. Um, uh, As to why Trump endorsed her of all of the, the races that Trump has waited in on this, this is one of the more inexplicable, if only because we know Trump likes to pick a winner. And it was pretty obvious that, uh, McGeehan was never really going to be in a position, uh, to topple an incumbent governor who has not committed kind of the, the, the sort of cardinal sin either of, of being so openly anti-Trump, uh, like the, the senators and, and representatives that voted to impeach him or, uh, you know, been an embarrassment to the degree that someone like Madison Cawthorn was. Um, so uh, the, the end result, relatively unsurprising, um, uh, though I will say in the final weeks of the race, the Republican Governors Association did come in and spend a little bit of money on behalf of little uh, I, I tend to think that was more, uh, a better safe than sorry maneuver. And clearly I think the margin, the final margin would suggest that, um, he, he was in good position from the beginning. He cleared 50% of the vote. Um, wh- what I will say though, uh, and not to completely contradict myself is that, uh, the state attorney general in Idaho, um, who I believe was the longest, one of the longest serving. Uh, state attorneys general in, in the country. Um, a guy named Lawrence Wasden uh, lost his primary pretty handily to former Tea Party Congressman Raul, Raul Labrador. Um, so clearly there was a, a certain level of anti-incumbent uh, energy to be tapped into. Uh, but nobody would ever mistake Brad Little for a, a squishy rhino. Um, and, and and so uh, was was just never really able to get uh, within striking distance of of toppling the the incumbent governor.
1: Finally, let's round it out with Oregon. Again, th- there's a race that's unsettled. Uh, we we don't know the exact timing of when it will be settled. But two races in particular, uh, Oregon gained a seat in, in reapportionment, so they had a a, a seat to fill, uh, and uh, and and so there they, they there was a contest for that, and then there was a contest for Kurt Schrader's seat. Uh, Kurt Schrader is a uh, sort of a moderate Democrat, you know, he's a former uh, a veterinarian. He's gone so far as to vote against Nancy Pelosi in leadership uh, situations, but you know, he he was going up against a uh, a more progressive candidate, uh, uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner. There, you know, at least on election night, and since we've in in the days since, she's had a, a fairly sizable lead, but then there was a, a sort of a voting ballot you know snafu with the way things were labeled Oregon is all vote by mail and the the part of the district where Schrader lives is you know had, had to come in but just the fact that it was this close with Schrader being a veteran lawmaker I mean h- here again we, we see this the democrats with their the the tensions in their party between the more liberals uh and the progressives and people like Schrader who you know is like this is a f- some you know I represent some conservative areas and also I think that we should you know, not have so much debt and so forth. I mean, it just, it, it's sort of fascinating to see this play out because this is the biggest scare he's had from the, the Democrats. You know, he usually gets a scare from the Republicans in the general election, but this is the first time that he's, you know, been, it's been this close with him in the primary, right? Yeah,
0: this, uh, he, he is looking, uh, like he may well lose this race. Obviously there, there hasn't been an official projection yet, but, uh, he, he did not start out strong. I, I think that uh, there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, the first is in a redistricting year members are always going to be more susceptible to primary challenges because they have new territory uh, right. that they have to uh, contend with and um, you know for for Schrader that mean, meant winning uh, votes in Deschutes County. it meant winning votes um, in in more, uh, liberal areas than perhaps he was used to. Um, so, so there's a baseline level of vulnerability that exists uh, in years ending in two uh, for, for all members of Congress uh, that we're seeing here. The other thing that's going on is uh, this cuts a little bit differently than uh, some of the progressive versus moderate matchups that we see uh, taking place over the last couple of years. Because Schrader wasn't only a moderate, he really went out of his way to uh, be in opposition to what what the Democratic Party as a whole w- wanted to do in any given moment. Um, he ruffled quite a few feathers by uh, calling, uh, referring to the impeachment of Trump, uh, referring to it as a lynching. Um, he held up, uh, the infrastructure bill. He was one of the, the members uh, of that small group that held up the infrastructure bill. He, uh, was very much opposed to a lot of the facets of the build back better bill, which obviously never, uh, came to fruition. Um, so it wasn't only that he was, uh, a moderate member of the party. He, he, he was almost too far outside of, of the party consensus in the other direction, um, to, uh, to be able to count on, on the votes of the rank and file, um, in, in his district. This, this wasn't a Joe Crawley versus AOC situation where Joe Crawley was a good party man. I don't think, uh, people would call Kurt Schrader necessarily a good party man. And frankly, I'm not sure how many tears will be shed, uh, if he if he does not come back to Congress, uh, certainly if if McLeod Skinner is able to hold the seat in the fall if she's the nominee, um, because he was always kind of a, a thorn in the side of of House leadership, and so uh, it it is a little bit different perhaps than um, you know a Cory Bush versus Lacey Clay or. Uh, Ayanna Presley versus Mike Capuano um, that that we've seen in in recent years. The other thing I'd say is that while while Jamie McLeod Skinner is a more progressive candidate, she also does uh, almost in a, a a way that's slightly analogous to Fetterman, um, have a uh, a more um, workman sensibility about her. Uh, she comes from the eastern part of the state, which is more rural. Um, her wife's family is a, a, a seventh-generation ranching family um, in eastern Oregon. Um, and she previously ran for Congress in a very Republican district in, in 2018. Uh, so uh, while she is more progressive, she also does kind of have some uh, cachet um, that, that – uh, Makes her an appealing candidate to people who, who maybe are not as as left leaning as she is on some of the policies.
1: And finally, I just want to you know mention the not the same kind of dynamics at, at work in Oregon 6th district. This is the you know the the kind of the newish district, but the you know there you know plenty of people expressed a lot of interest in in you know a new seat, and there were no, there's no shortage of. Uh, of candidates, uh, and uh, you know this, and then all of a sudden, this race got sort of shaken up a little bit. Uh, somewhat late in the process, when a guy who's a sort of a cryptocurrency investor uh, named Carrick Flynn got into the race, and then secured all this sort of establishment DC at least backing. And this really ruffled a lot of feathers on the ground, uh, particularly with the, uh, the, the the woman who ended up winning, Andrea Salinas, who had been endorsed by Bold Pack, uh, uh, which is a you know pack that is uh, tries to support uh, Latino and Latina candidates and so forth. Is chaired by Ruben Gallego, a Democrat from Arizona. And, uh, you know, Salinas ended up winning somewhat comfortably, but for a while there, there was all this super PAC money pouring in on behalf of Flynn and people were like, who is this guy? And, you know, he was Portland or Portland area, but like, it it just showed that like, wow, we're, this is the first election I can remember where there's, you know, there's always been conservatives, moderates, uh, establishment, non-establishment, you know, outsider candidates. And this is the first one where I see this a lot, where there's a crypto uh, angle, there's a crypto (laughs) Backed person. Uh, and and it just it speaks to what you're saying that this is like just unsettled territory. in when there's redistricting, and people some people don't don't uh, don't want to wait in, in line necessarily. They want the seat right now. <laughs> There's
0: a guy named Sam Bankman fried who's the founder of a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX, who is the billionaire kind of behind this uh, massive political spending. He has set up a super PAC that is pouring millions of dollars into congressional races all across the country. I think what made this one different were two things. Uh, first, it was the scale. He spent upwards of 12 or 13 million dollars on this one congressional district. I think we heard a lot about Uh, Peter Thiel spending $10 million on J.D. Vance, spending $10 million on on Blake Masters in Arizona, and here's Sam Bankman-Fried coming in with more than that for uh, a random congressional district um, south of Portland. Um, The other thing that makes this one... uh, stand out and different. I guess there are three things. The second one is that Carrick Flynn really was a newcomer. Uh, he was a political unknown in the state. He's a government contractor. He's got a very good educational pedigree and, and an uplifting life story. Um, and he, he does work with pandemic preparedness. Uh, but he has only occasionally voted in the state of Oregon. I don't believe that he voted in the 2020 election. Um, and, and was uh, uh, unknown on the political scene, as opposed to some of these other cryptocurrency-backed candidates. Um, I believe there was one, in uh, Valerie Fushi in North Carolina, had some crypto backing. Um, there were a couple in Indiana uh, who are more established political figures. People know them, so it's not as much of a surprise um, when when a big outside group comes in to, to spend some money on their behalf. Lucy McBath in Georgia is another one. Um, the third thing uh, is is what happened after uh, the cryptocurrency group came in with $12 million, which is that the House Majority PAC, which is the Pelosi-aligned um, Democratic super PAC in Washington, D.C., dedicated to securing and maintaining the House majority. They came in and spent a million dollars boosting Carrick Flynn as well, on top of the $13 million that he was already Uh, getting in support from, from the cryptocurrency group. Uh, and it is extremely rare to see HMP play in a competitive democratic primary, especially in a seat that leans pretty clearly to Democrats favor. It's not as if there was one candidate who was going to blow the general and one candidate who wasn't, and they wanted to save their chances. Uh, this was purely, um, this was purely to support Carrick Flynn, uh, and they have not provided a good answer as to why they did that. And there are uh, many people out there who were very frustrated. Uh, I think every other candidate in the race, they all released the same joint statement, um, castigating uh, HMP for, for involving themselves in the race. There was a lot of frustration among uh, activists of color. Um, who saw the establishment Democrats in Washington DC coming to support a white man in a race where there were multiple uh, Latina candidates, there was a high profile black candidate. Um, and, and this was a district uh, that has a significant Latino population, uh, over 20% of the district and, and was really thought to be primed to elect uh, Oregon's first Latino representative. Um, so to see National Democrats come in and support a guy like Carrick Flynn, uh, really frustrated, um, really frustrated candidates in this district and their allies, especially at a time when uh, there are so many competitive races on the map. There are so many places, uh, so many candidates that probably could use that $1 million plus that was spent on Flynn's behalf um, in, in more competitive seats that, that, that didn't get to because uh, they spent it there.
1: As the Beatles might say, "Crypto can't buy me love." In this case, uh, because Flynn only, only got about 18, 19 percent of the vote, Selina's got thirty-seven percent. So, um, again, maybe candidates do matter, Jacob. <laughs> in this case, um, Jay, we could we could talk, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, for another hour, uh, but I, I think this uh, this is going to do it uh, because we j- there's just a lot to consider here, and and these are really. I think we've touched on the biggest, you know, sort of issues that that came up in addition to just the sort of candidate results and so forth. I think that you've done a great job of explaining like how, you know, there are so many divisions within each party, you know, competing for these votes. And sometimes it's it's crazy, right, because regardless of whether Edwards beat Cawthorn or vice versa, that's a very Republican district. And in in Oregon, this is a very democratic district we just talked about. So it's a lot of money. It's, I guess it's just a good time to have own a television station in these places <laughs> for the, for the ads. Uh, but, but thank you very much uh, for, for your thoughts. And uh, we will not let years go by pandemic be damned before the next time you're, you're back on political theater. So thank you. Of course. Happy to do it.